Welcome to Episode 8 of An Unscripted Woman, a podcast that's all about women living luminous lives. I'm Lael Cooper-Jepson, and I'm so glad you're here. Since releasing my book at the end of 2015, many of you have expressed a desire to hear me read an audio version of my book, Unscripted, A Woman's Living Prayer. This podcast is my creative response to that desire. Each week, I'll be reading a chapter from my book aloud on this podcast, and then I'll be riffing a bit on what I'm aware of and what I've learned since writing it. To make it easier to follow along, you'll find that each episode of this podcast corresponds to the title of each chapter of my book. And I'll remind you, you don't necessarily need to read the or listen to the episodes of my podcast in order, much like you don't need to read my book in the order it was written. Beyond that intention, I'm not entirely sure what these, where these episodes will go, but I'm willing to find out if you are. I hope you'll join me, and here's how. Follow this podcast on SoundCloud or subscribe to it via iTunes so each new episode will magically appear in your podcast feed. If you follow my blog or my She Changes Facebook page, you'll see each episode posted out there as well. As always, you can find out more about me and my business at shechanges.com. So here we go. Chapter 8, Stands with a Fist. And the quote at the top is, I sing sometimes for the war that I fight, because every tool is a weapon if you hold it right, by Annie DeFranco. I'm from New Jersey, and that side of me has deep roots, often showing up when I don't expect it in my scrappy nature, my sarcasm, my impatience, or my snark. I'm also a Scorpio, which seems to mean a lot to people when I share that categorization, somehow underscoring the intensity and passion that I bring to just about everything. I'm a card-carrying member of Generation X, which means I was raised with a mindset that I could do and be anything I wanted to to be, as long as I put my mind to it, worked hard, took initiative, and made it happen for myself. I was raised by a single working mom who was sent home sick from her first job when she told them she was expecting her first child and later re-entered the workforce wearing shoulder pads and power suits. This meant I ate a steady diet of women struggling to be seen, to be taken seriously, to get promoted, and to earn the same income a man could. When I was little, I used to think the shoulder pads that women wore were because they literally had to break glass ceilings, which I now know is kind of true. And although I wouldn't necessarily describe myself as a type A overachiever, I'm known for striving, pushing, and being very driven. More than ambition, I have, ha- I have an unquenchable thirst and hunger for living life to its fullest and making the most of it. I've always loved a good challenge, climbing, sometimes clamoring up ladders, being told no, and then defying the odds. I approach it as a game, and it's a rush to play. Just writing that brief description today, I have a mixture of pride and exhaustion. An interesting and familiar emotional cocktail I have mixed up and drunk down most of my life, shaken, not stirred. The movie Dances with Wolves came out in theaters in 1990 when I was 22 years old. Understandably, this movie went on to become a lightning bolt of controversy and a classic example of the dangers of reinforcing stereotypes. But at the time, I remember being struck by one particular scene. Kevin Costner's character comes across this woman down by a stream, the white adopted daughter 
of a Lakota medicine man who was grieving the death of her husband. When we first see her, she's wild-eyed with long hair and strong limbs. She's angry and upset and railing against the injustices of her life. She is fierce and frail, tough and tender, hard and soft. She is equally desperate and filled with a longing for something she can't understand. Looking at her white skin, you'd expect she'd speak English, but we quickly discover that her native tongue is the Lakota language. She's confusing, complex, and not what she seems. I fell in love with this character immediately upon seeing her, thoroughly relating to her without fully understanding why. Her name was Stands with a Fist. When I saw the scene, I connected to her spirit and instinct to fight, as well as how she identified so deeply with a group of people who appeared to be so fundamentally different than her. She was a warrior, respected and accepted, even as she stood out in her whiteness, much as I had stood out as a girl among boys and later a woman among men. She was fluent in a language that was not necessarily her own. And yet she longed for something more. She railed against her life, and she often felt alone. It's been a while since I've been that woman, but sometimes I can still catch my fists clenched and ready by my sides, so I know part of her will always be with me. And truth be told, I love that woman, the fighter, the fierce one. In many ways, she's more familiar than the woman I'm becoming now. So many images come to mind from my own life that mirror my impressions of stands with a fist, except I wasn't a character in a movie, or maybe I was the main character in my movie, playing the role, saying my lines, hitting my mark according to the script I believe I had been given. No wonder I related to the character from the movie. In many ways, she was me. I was her. I think of the moment I saw my sister mocked and teased to the point of heartbreak at the bus stop by a boy who had been her friend and now was the subject of her first crush. I remember stepping forward, using my voice forcibly to silence the ridicule and shut down the bullying. He laughed at me, a nine-year-old girl, standing in his twelve-year-old face, and pushed me backward into a snowbank, while my older sister giggled nervously, feeling strangely conflicted between how to protect both young love and a younger sister. When I think of my mom, when she finally decided to leave my father and the loveless and abusive marriage she had endured for nearly 19 years, I see myself quietly stepping out in front of her and my older sister, pushing them behind me, guarding them with my arm, protecting them from the wrath of my father's cruelty and my, with my own energy. That was me, stands with a fist, age 12. I just assumed that role. No one asked it of me. It came naturally and I excelled at it to the point of not knowing any other way to be in relation to the other girls and women in my life. But if you've ever stood with your fists tightly balled and ready to fight for any period of time, you know that eventually you get tired, and your hands start to relax because the muscles are fatigued. Gravity starts to win, and your arms gradually lower. Or in some extreme cases, as the character did in the movie, you simply pass out too exhausted to care. That was me too. As a coach, part of the work that I do is to help clients see how the stories we hold about ourselves, the things we tell ourselves about ourselves, 
can inform our decisions and ultimately guide our lives, sometimes in a direction that doesn't serve us. My most recent thought about this is that around midlife, our stories start to run out of gas. We reach the end of the line with them, and they begin to give us diminishing returns. As such, they become easier to put down because their weight is more obvious and burdensome. I've come to understand that the stories we collect and share are really just evidence of the beliefs we hold dear. They serve to reinforce themselves again and again each time we tell them, until eventually, like the tattered and threadbare blankets of our childhood, they get a rip and some holes and eventually lose all form. One such belief of mine is that I'm a fighter. I've long cherished this belief, and I've had countless stories as evidence, being completely deaf for nearly a year in childhood before anyone realized it, living with my mom as she navigated a drawn-out and nasty divorce, being a Division I runner, being a woman working in the corporate world, scrappy, resourceful, resilient, fierce, strong. Last year, my eldest son and I got totally sucked into the Divergent book series, It's based on a dystopian society where, at age 16, you have to make a choice to identify with one of five factions, each one valuing a particular quality. We flew through the books, knowing the movie was coming out soon, and were eager to compare notes. We both wanted to know which faction the other would have chosen for us. In my mind, it was a no-brainer. I would have chosen the Dauntless faction. This was the faction that valued courage above all else. They were the warriors of society. Totally badass, physically capable, mentally strong, fiercely loyal. But I didn't say any of this. I just asked my son to guess my faction. He looked at me thoughtfully and said, I'm thinking it'd either be Amity, which valued harmony, or Abnegation, which valued selflessness. My jaw dropped. Images flashed through my mind from my life, and I felt ridiculously close to having an identity crisis. How could my son not see me more clearly? How could he not get that my most treasured quality is courage? After all, this was the same son who, when he was six on our vacation at a lake house, accidentally knocked over a steel david, one of those big hooks that holds boats away from the docks, in such a way that it actually fell down on top of him, pinning the skinniest part of him to the ground. Had it not been for a railroad tie by his feet that acted like a fulcrum, displacing some of his weight, he would have been crushed. I heard his screams and came running outside. Without hesitation, I lifted up the David and told him to drag himself out from under it, which he did. He was rattled, as were we, and we went to the emergency room to make sure he had no internal damage. How much did that David weigh, I heard the doctor ask my husband. About 500 pounds, the same as my motorcycle. I was dumbstruck. I had heard about mothers lifting cars off their children, but I honestly didn't believe it. It hadn't even felt heavy, but try as I might later that night, I could not lift that David one inch off the ground. Surely that act alone would qualify me for the dauntless faction. In many ways, that's who I am. I rally, I rise, I respond to the call ready for action, ready to fight if need be. So as I listened to my son that day, I could feel myself digging in, holding on. Around the same time, I was reading Daniel Laporte's The Desire Map, 
and trying to solidify the five words that best describe how I want to feel in my life. I put dauntless right at the top of the list. Other words followed, like potent and resourceful and shining. I wrote them on a pink sticky and posted them in my office. And then the strangest thing happened. I noticed that every time I saw them, I felt exhausted, drained, uninspired. I sighed a lot when I looked at them. They depleted me just hanging out on a sticky, let alone considering putting them into action. I told one of my friends, it's like all the fight has gone out of me. What I've come to appreciate through the convergence of a bunch of other events since that day is that my masculine energy, the fighter in me, has been tapped one too many times, depleted. It's simply not working for me like it used to. It's a story that has told itself out, making way for a new story to emerge, one where the feminine energy steps forward as the main character from time to time, which, to be quite honest, is a completely foreign concept to me. When I went to an energy worker earlier this year, she said, Hmm. Your entire body, especially your lymphatic system, the fluids that house your emotion and spirit, is stuck in fight mode. And fight is just another form of protection, which means your body is afraid and has been for many, many lifetimes. It seems it's all you've ever known. Oh. So I asked her what she thought I should do. Do? There's no doing here. Only feeling and being. Everything right now needs to flow from your heart not your head. Shit. Then I asked, for how long? And she just smiled. So that's chapter eight of my book, entitled Stands with a Fist. And here's a bit of a riff on that. Um, what I'm touching on here is identity and how we can identify with something that becomes a part of who we are even when it no longer serves us. So, like I said, I love that part of me that's a fighter. Um, but there's, uh, there's cousins to that that I hear in working with women every day. So a story that I hear a lot of women tell themselves, myself included, is everything has to be hard. That's a very, very common story that we actually don't even think about. It's ju We just assume it to be true, even though... When I work with women, I'll often ask for evidence that su supports that story being true, and she has to kind of dig for it. Um, it points to, as a society, how skeptical and wary we are of the inverse of that, which is we can effort less, and things can be much more simpler than we allow them to be. Um, the other story that I hear a lot of, in case it's true for you, is this is going to take a lot of time and a lot of work. This being change. This being um, receiving the thing that I want to receive. Finally, getting the thing, attaining the, the, um, the thing that I want to attain. It's going to take a lot of time. So you feel what happens in your body when you hear that story? It's going to take a lot of time. You sort of muster up and you muckle in and you get ready for like an endurance race when it could potentially just be this idle saunter through a beautiful meadow. No one says it has to be the slog, but we are so programmed to fight. If you look at the words we use in our language of 
Um, no, there's no such thing as a free lunch and no pain, no gain. Uh, put some elbow grease into it. Uh, never let them see you sweat, but better make sure you sweat because nothing, if you're not, if you're not sweating, you're not working hard enough. Um, a shot across the bow, um, you know, there's just so many. Tune your ear to our language and listen for how it reinforces that story of things being hard taking a long time, being a battle, being a fight. And I pay a lot of attention to my body when I say I'm a fighter. You know, my fists go up. I get ready to, like, like ready to do battle. And that story, I have come to appreciate so much in me. That is the, that is the story. If you think about a fighter, only one person can win, right? So it's a contest against you and a force, you and another person, you and... You know, it uh, reminds me of when I was growing, starting my business, and I was advised to, who, who are you going to steal market share from? And I, and I cringed it. I was like, wow, that's really, um, that, that suggests that there's not enough to go around. It's, it's coming from such a place of lack. And back then, I took the really heretical notion of saying, I wonder if my biggest competitors, and I'm putting that in air quotes, um, are my greatest allies. And sure enough, in the world of coaching, um, it's such a referral-based industry. I get, I get a lot of referrals from other coaches who know me, my work, my personality, and trust that I'll be a good fit for someone that they know. So everything we have structured, um, you know, that phrase going toe-to-toe with someone, with another company, really sets us up to do battle, which is a form of disconnection. I am separating from you. I am different than you. At a time, I believe, in our evolution and in our consciousness, in many of our hearts, is we are hungry for connection. So that story um, moves us in the opposite direction of what I, for one, want, which is to feel one, to feel connected. Um, so the other thought that I'd had, the thing that I want to point out, though, and make space for is putting those stories down and and fe- acknowledging that they have worn out that is a terrifying proposition for many of us it 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 again it's not easy it leaves like a hole um so if you think about the question that I'd I'd have you sit with is who are you without that old story um it, it isn't replaced immediately by another story. It's sort of the thing that you live your way into another form of being, another story. So when you extract the old story, I'm a fighter, it does leave a hole, which is terrifying. We don't like holes in our society. We like to fill them immediately. It's a form of grief. So my invitation to you is allow yourself to grieve that old story and nod what it has given you and how it has served you. Maybe even do a ritual where you write down your gratitude for it and you bury it under a tree in your backyard or you burn it and release it. Um, but bring some reverence um, to the releasing and for the and definitely allow yourself to feel your feelings there because they are often large. Um, the The other thing I will touch on is um, a couple things along the lines of making that transition and finding your way to a new story 
And what the woman told me at the end of this chapter was, you know, there is no doing here because we want to know how to, what we do, right? I get that question all the time as a coach. What do I do? And nine times out of ten, when I hear that question, it's, it's not about doing in that moment. It's about feeling something that we don't want to feel. And there's a great, great tool from, let me see if I can remember it. It's, um, um, it's random acts of, it's not random acts of kindness. It's, um, something, ugh, it's in my book somewhere. Oh, radical self-acceptance, I think it's called. Um, something like that. But, um, if you want to know, just email me and I'll get you the link to it. But she talks about this particular tool that I love, um, and it's about naming. It's, she's, it's not original to her. Many people have talked about this. She tells the story of a man who was very, very um, popular and highly respected academic speaker. And he was invited to speak at this uh, conference or at this uh, big presentation in this auditorium that was filled with people who loved his work. What they didn't know is that this man was now in the early stages of Alzheimer's, and he um, w would go in and out of, of remembering things. And sure enough, when he walked up on stage, he had one of those moments, and everything he knew went out of his head. Um, and he had this tool that he used to navigate these instances, and he closed his eyes in front of all these people and in the bright lights, and he just started naming everything he was feeling one by one he would say mortified ashamed embarrassed like a fraud um scared yeah you know all these things he just listed 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 until he was done and then he opened his eyes and he saw that everyone in the audience had tears in their eyes many with them just sobbing because he had dared to name and honor emotions with such reverence and he was holding space for them and had modeled it beautifully and so I write about this later in my book um, there's an example of me doing just that but I'll just give you that tool of naming when you're feeling those feelings that are so hard to feel there's often this that's often a sign that there are lots of feelings bundled into one and so if you can want, close your eyes and one by one say out loud each emotion, it's a way of honoring them and saying, I see you, you're here, I acknowledge you, I'm not running from you anymore. And that lightens the load and loosens the reins, the knot a little bit, and makes it a little bit easier. The third visual I'd leave you with, I'm actually writing a blog post today about this, um, I did a ritual this past week with, um, it was Koya Dance. My friend does Koya Dance up in Freeport, Maine. And she did this ritual for the new moon. And she had us all clarify one word that was our intention. My word was luminous. And we had to partner up with someone. And my partner's word was worthy. And what we did was we, I always cringe when there's partner exercises because I don't know how this is going to go down, but it was unbelievable. This, and what she did was she said, I want you to Im literally embody your word letter by letter by letter. So one person embodied, the other person witnessed their partner. So my partner went first and I watched as she traced with her body 
the W, and then the H, and then the O, and then the L, and then the E. And then when she got to the end, she would trace it backwards. That was the exercise, the E, and then the L, and then the O, and then the H, and then the W. And then she would do it again for the length of a song. And it was a really cool exercise, but the coolest thing about it was you could see her dropping down into her word with her whole... First it started with her head. What does an H look like? How should I do that with my body? And then you could see the moment when it dropped down into her body. And she was now not just spelling the word whole. She was actually embodying it. And then it was my turn... And I had to write luminous on a word because I can't spell luminous backwards, so I had to reference it. But I could feel that moment uh, for me as well when I was embodying it. And I bring this up because this is where I'm going. This is the opposite for me, or the, the companion, if you will, to fighting. I'm calling it live a living prayer. I'm calling it feminine leadership. I'm calling it embodying my desires versus fighting for my desires with my fists. And so I offer you that visual because I think it was, I opened my eyes and I saw all these women tracing their intentions with such focus and such heart with their whole bodies. You could see their desire and you could see it was just so powerful. It was five or six women living their prayer at the same time and having it witnessed. It was absolutely stunning. So I'll leave you with that visual. Feel free to try it at home if you'd like. It was a beautiful exercise. And like I said, I'm writing about it today. So you can find that on my blog. It'll be called A Living Prayer. Okay. So thanks for listening to this episode. And here's to living unscripted, to having access to more of who we are, and to letting our bright lights shine freely. Go ahead. Be luminous.